Open God's holy word to 2 Peter chapter 2. Our focus this morning will be on 10b through verse 16. I'll be reading the entire chapter. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. Because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels... When they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul soul, over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord, but these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime, their blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boast of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, this is not a pleasant chapter to read. And I believe that is exactly the point, is to be repulsed by these false teachers. But Father, they are so successful because we are sinful. Even your saints have remaining sin to deal with. And so let us have the humility as we approach this text to recognize that there is something in us that is attracted to this repulsion. And grant repentance. In Christ's name. Amen. Sin is an insanity for which the only cure is a new mind by means of the new birth. Sin is irrational. It's illogical. It does not make sense. You cannot explain it. But whereas many are like livestock, continually testing the electric fence to try to get to the forbidden on the other side, false teachers ignore the danger, warning, and high voltage signs of the power substation, break in, and dance wildly without control or caution. In the previous section... Verses 1 through the first part of verse 10, Peter speaks of the rise and fall of first false teachers, where they come from and where they're going. In this one, 10b through 16, he turns to expose their sin, their depravity. Peter does not airbrush their wickedness, nor is this any caricature. Here they are in all their grotesque evil. Here they are in true form, no makeup, no disguise. This exposing of who they really are falls into two parts. Verses 10b through 13, he highlights their arrogance and focuses on a specific example, a specific sin of arrogance. And then in verses 13b through 16, he hits you with a litany of sins and follows that with a summary illustration. So first, their arrogance. They are bold and willful. In the same way that we saw life and godliness paired together in Chapter 1, verse 3, such that they communicated a single idea. Uh, You have bold and willful joined together here, really, to communicate a single thought. Bold and willful. Bold could be translated courageous, but it has no virtuous aspect to it here at all. It, it, It means daring in the most foolish of ways. Willful has the sense of stubbornness without any positive bent on that as well. They're 
they're just self-willed. And so daring defiance or brazen arrogance would communicate the attitude well. The masses find thrills in safe sins, roller coaster sins, whereas these false teachers base jump without a parachute. There's this kind of bold, willful, daring defiance to their rebellion. And one way they demonstrate this is by blaspheming glories. That's a better translation that represents the vagueness of the original language here. Glorious Ones is, is trying to get at an interpretive uh, aspect of what does he mean by glories. So what does he mean? Blaspheming glories? I don't know. But you get the sense that they're playing with high voltage here. They're blaspheming glories. There are various suggestions as to what this entails, of which I think uh, that, well, the majority debate de contends of whether these are demons or angels. That, that's where most of the, the opinions fall. And I think angels, and, and the reason why this is the most likely uh, debate, opinions concerning what this means is because of the parallel passage that's found in Jude 8 through 10, where we read, Yet in like manner these people, false teachers, also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones, the glories. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Now that text raises a host of more questions that we won't take time to look at. But you see that you have this angel that doesn't presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, and the false teachers who do. But if this concerns angels, you wonder, is blasphemy the proper word? Doesn't blasphemy have reference to God? Yeah, but consider how often you see the angels associated with God's presence, His throne. You see, they are His ministers carrying out His will. They are His messengers delivering His message, His word. And so that being so, whenever we were speaking of angels, not demons, but the true angels, you cannot slander them without blaspheming God's acts, God's words. And we have no idea as to how the false teachers were doing this, and only tentatively saying that this is what they were doing, that it did have some kind of reference to angels. But in all this, you, you get this much, that they're toying with holy things. False teachers are at leisure in the temple, they play with things that have been consecrated unto God. They presume to peek behind the veil and dare the cherubs. They blaspheme glories. Beware of the pastor who walks lightly up to the pulpit, who skips to present the word of God, who in his communication has more of a sense of slapstick and jokes and entertaining than the seriousness of dealing with the holy word of God. 
False teachers take up the Bible and they blaspheme. They pray and they blaspheme. They presume to lead God's people and they blaspheme. They pick up bread to break and give it to the saints and they blaspheme. They play with holy things. And to bring this out even further, Peter, like Jude, contrasts their behavior with the angels, the glories, if you will, I believe, the angels that they speak against, verse 11. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. The angels don't pronounce judgment on the false teachers. They know their place. There's a stance of humility. They may be God's agents to carry out His justice and His judgment, but they don't presume to act like the judge himself. Even though these false teachers are worthy of condemnation, the angels know it would be blasphemy if they pronounce judgment because they are not the judge. These angels, though they are superior to man, will not pronounce judgment on wicked men, whereas these false teachers do presume to act as judge. One party will be condemned by the holy judge. One party will not. And the irony is that the innocent don't presume to pronounce judgment on the wicked. And the wicked arrogantly pronounce judgment. Not on just some innocent man in some regard that is ultimately condemned before God outside of Christ, but on the holy elect angels themselves. In this arrogance, they behave, verse 12, like animals. Long before President Trump used that word to describe the members of MS-13, Peter used it as a simile to describe a far more deadly gang, false teachers. They're like animals in that their behavior is irrational and instinctual. And this instinct is that which Paul spoke of in Ephesians 2 as the passions of the flesh or the desires of the body and the mind. And that sinful impulse, as Paul's expressing it there, is something that belongs to all humanity. But what you see with false teachers here is that it's wed to this brazen arrogance. It's put on display. Peter spoke of it earlier in this chapter in verse 2 as their sensuality. Now some false teachers do put on airs of an intellectual bent, or they carry many academic accolades, but make no mistake, underneath it all, what's driving them is a lust, a craving, a desire for sin, an animal-like impulse for sin. And like animals, these false teachers, verse 12, are born to be caught and destroyed. And here you have the often assailed and hated but unconquered doctrine of reprobation. As God has purposed to save His elect, He is determined to destroy the wicked. But you need to see that there is an asymmetrical relationship between reprobation and election. Reprobation is grounded upon God's justice and election, His grace. 
So if upon hearing these doctrines you say, that's not fair, you need to realize what you're calling for. You're calling for reprobation for all. You want justice. You want God to do what is right. That's not fair. You want justice for all. That means all of us, because of what Adam did, condemned eternally. It's grace that by definition is undeserved, unmerited. In that sense, it's unfair in this way. It's not justice, though it is grounded upon justice still. This doctrine is undeniable. Romans 9.22 speaks of vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. 1 Peter 2.8, the first letter Peter told us about those who stumble over the cornerstone. And he tells us that they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Further confirmation was found in verse 9 where Peter says that the Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. He keeps them under punishment. There is a judgment that's already upon their souls and keeps them in that place until the day of judgment. They have, therefore, verse 17, a reservation that they cannot escape. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. And they're blaspheming is part of this animal-like aspect to them. Because they blaspheme, verse 12, what they have no understanding about. It's, it's a further display of this irrational, animal-like behavior. Now again, we don't know what this blasphemy consisted of specifically. This doesn't render the word unhelpful, irrelevant though. Rather, it helps us to see the principle at play so that broader application is made. They blaspheme about things that they don't have any understanding concerning. Think how rarely the Bible says anything about angels. And here they're presuming to make a judgment against them. You see this kind of arrogance of speaking into the void. How often do false teachers speak concerning topics that are really vague and obscure and very little is said about in the Scripture? How often are angels a major highlight of their teaching? Consider all the heavenly tourism literature that's out there, such as heaven is for real, and how much angels are made of and how much angels say to them and how much angels minister to them. Or consider Bethel Church in Redding, California, where angel feathers are said to fall from the ceiling and convey various things, revelations, healings. Or consider how false teachers use their claim as apostles or their claim to have received revelation as a cover-up for their ignorance. They say something that's really contrary to the Scripture, but the way to get out of that is, the way to cover up your ignorance is you received fresh revelation. Most recent version of such blasphemy is known as the NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation. They chose that term themselves, New Apostolic Reformation. So persons like Bill Johnson of Bethel Church claim to be apostles every bit as much as those of old. In response, John MacArthur says of the NAR, it is not new. We've seen this before. It is not new. It is not a reformation, and it is certainly not apostolic. 
The quickest way to guarantee that you are not apostolic is to claim to be so. Their arrogance is a guise for ignorance, blasphemous ignorance. And now, in contrast to these angels who do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment, these will be destroyed. That's the contrast that, that he was intending to build in verse 12. It takes a while to get to. But these, and then he describes them, they're like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they were ignorant. These will also be destroyed in their destruction. The angels who do not presume to pronounce judgment will not be destroyed. And then you have these false teachers who will be destroyed making these blasphemous judgments. There's the contrast brought to full. But this phrase, destroyed in their destruction, it could mean that I've misread all of this in their destruction and that demons have been intended destroyed in the destruction of demons. I don't take it to be that way. I think this phrase is emphatic. They will be destroyed in their own destruction. Their own destruction will destroy them. And the reason, another reason I think this is because you see a similar kind of poetic expression in the next phrase. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrong. It's the same word. Now the ESV is prone to a misunderstanding there. Suffering wrong. And so I like the NAS better here. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. They will be destroyed in their own destruction, suffering harm for the harm that they've done. And following this initial treatment of their daring defiance, you have a litany of lunacy. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. There are some sins that even the pagans, by and large, relegate to the night. Even though they be acceptable sins, they are acceptable after the sun goes down only. But false teachers, they parade their blasphemy, their sinfulness, their depravity during the day. Their conscience is so seared, there's no sense of shame in this. They're, verse 13, blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. I think the picture that Peter wants to paint here is that of an unacceptable sacrifice defiling the temple, the house of God, the church. Blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. The law specifies again and again of sacrifices that they are to be without blemish. Peter will later command these saints, verse 14 of chapter 3, to be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. The exact opposite. I think Peter is saying, you have these unacceptable sacrifices, as it were, at the Lord's table, reveling in how they're deceiving and leading astray. They're like Hophni and Phinehas, those two wicked sons of Eli, who though the law allotted a portion of the sacrifices given to Yahweh as their own. But discontent with that, they just partook of them however they wished. And not only so, but that text in 1 Samuel 2 goes on to tell us that they committed adultery with the women who served at the entrance to the tabernacle. 
Now you see how that just goes right into what Peter describes next concerning these false teachers. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. It goes beyond saying that they lust for sex. Their lust is actually for adultery. Where you find false teaching, perverse sexual sin is often thinly buried beneath. And it's also so convenient that whenever one of these apostles fall, you have another apostle to speak restoration and how they should be brought fully back into the fold as God's anointed despite it all. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin, but with their own eyes full of desire. They also play on the desires of others. Verse 14, as they entice unsteady souls. False teachers prey on the weak and the wounded. Unsteady souls, enticing them. They look for those who are struggling, those who are wrestling, those who are hurting They offer toxic and intoxicating answers to those who have doubts and worries and fears. They look for them. Verse 14, they have hearts trained in greed. We get our word gymnasium from the Greek word that's used here for trained. False teachers have a very strong cardio routine. Unfortunately, their hearts are fit for greed. Proponents of the prosperity gospel don't even try to hide this. I know some of you saw the video that Jesse Duplantis released this week where he was asking for $54 million to purchase a new jet. Of course, Jesus told him to purchase this new jet, even though he already has three of them. Forsaking the right way, verse 15, they have gone astray. This reminds us that these false teachers are homegrown. They arise within the church, as verse 1 told us. They arise from among us. They forsake the right way. They are not apostles. They are apostates. They've turned from the faith. Having enjoyed these immense privileges within the church, they forsake them. Instead, they opt for the way of Balaam, who loved gain from wrongdoing. You see, they don't just veer from the right path. They forsake the right path for the love, for the, the love of money. The story of Balaam cannot be flannel graphed and made cutesy. I venture that if you surveyed, surveyed a lot of children of the church, who grew up going to vacation Bible school, multiple ones in some instances, They grew up in in, in vacation Bible school and Sunday school. If you surveyed them, they would probably think of Balaam a lot like they think of Jonah, as a true prophet of God who needed to be rebuked. He used a whale with one, he used a donkey with the other. But the Bible says that Balaam was one who practiced divination for hire, And so you had Balak, the king of the Moabites, who in league with the Midianites sent for Balaam 
to curse the people of God. You see, it wasn't because Balaam was God's prophet, but because Israel was his people that God intervened and spoke to Balaam and told him not to go. And so Balak sent more men and greater men, men of more renown, to Balak. And God permitted him to go this time. And it always puzzled me as a child, why if God permitted him to go, told him to go, was there this angel waiting to kill him on the way? And the text makes it clear, but this was never brought out by the flannel graph version. The angel tells him, I've come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. In root, Jonah, because of his greed, began to think, how can I play this both ways? How can I still come out with a prophet in this deal? What was the prophet's madness? It was gain for wrongdoing because of a heart well-trained in greed. Later events bore out what was in Balaam's heart. Shortly after that event, we read that while Israel lived in Shittim, this is Numbers 25, 1 through 3, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Bel of Peor, and the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel. And then it goes on to tell us that there was one Israelite man who was so brazen in his defiance that he brought a Midianite woman into the camp in the daytime, in the presence of all the congregation, in the presence of Moses and Aaron and the priest, parades her through the camp to his tent. What does all this have to do with Balaam? It's not until chapter 31, after Israel has conquered the Midianites, that Moses says this of the captured women. These, on Balaam's advice, caused the people to act treacherously against Yahweh in the incident of Peor. He knew he couldn't curse him with his mouth, but his ploy was to get Israel to bring judgment on herself. Revelation 2.14 says, Balaam taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. I want you to see, with this illustration of Balaam, how this whole litany of sins is subtly summed up. Listen to it again. Verse 10, uh, excuse me, verse 13, the latter part of it. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. Think of that Israelite man bringing this Midianite into the camp. They are blots and blemishes, defiling the worship of the people of God, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. But whereas Balaam 
was a pagan hired by a pagan king. Peter here is warning the church of such men like Balaam hired by the church. Peter pulls back the sheep's clothing to show us the wolf underneath. Jesus told us that we would recognize such wolves by their fruit. Peter here is unearthing this putrid, repulsive, rotting fruit. So I said, this is not an easy chapter to read. I've never heard anyone say that 2 Peter chapter 2 is their favorite chapter in the Bible. It's not pleasant. And that's precisely the point. You are to be repulsed by these false teachers. Reading of these animal-like men is somewhat like watching the nature channel and seeing some vicious predator tear into their prey. And though we're repulsed, let's not fail to remember who Peter's writing to. He's writing to the church of God. As repulsed as we may be, these false teachers are a danger to us, and they are a danger to us because they simply represent in, in just a vivid way the depravity from which every one of us were delivered. This is the depth of vile sinfulness we would fall to save the grace of God. And even though saved by the grace of God, there remains in us until He comes, as Peter has already promised us, there remains in us abiding sin, remaining sin. And we need to realize that false teachers use bait that we are prone to bite. We have a taste, a sinfully acquired taste for the bait that they use. So I think it's helpful to remember how Peter's brought us up to this point. He speaks to those who've obtained this faith where we stand on equal ground because the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been imputed to us by faith. And not only that, but Peter said that the righteousness of Christ is just not, is not simply imputed to you, but imparted to you as Christ by His power grants you all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. And akin to this, He's granted to you great and precious promises through which you partake of the divine nature. And because this is so, we are to make every effort at that godliness, every effort to add to our faith Virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and brotherly love. Love. And yet, sin remaining, Peter wants to remind us of these. We need to be reminded because we remember to sin so easily. We need to be reminded of these things because false teachers 
fish with bait that we're prone to bite. We need to be reminded of these things. And thus, we should be careful to pay attention to the apostolic witness as we have it in the New Testament and to the prophetic word of the Old Testament prophets that's been more fully confirmed, showing that these men didn't write according to their whimsy, but as the Holy Spirit carried them along. And thus it is, he warns us of these false teachers in contrast to the true. And I think whenever you begin to back up and you see what's brought you to this point, now you're repulsed by the false teachers all the more, but in the most powerful of ways, because you recognize that what's most despicable, despicable and grotesque and upsetting about this passage is not the vile sins to which they fall, but it's the glorious heights from which they fail. Oh, to see any, any person wallow in this kind of mud is, is grotesque. But to realize what they've forsaken and turned from to such sins. It's the contrast that makes their sin so vile, so appalling. The astounding thing is not how far they sink, but from how far they fell into such an abyss of sin. So by God's grace, by his word, may it not be so with us. May we pay attention to the witness of the apostles, the confirmed prophets of old. May we stand firm on the foundation of the church and give heed to none other than the shepherd's voice. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the great grace of Christ. May it keep us to the end. Being enthralled with him, may we see the Antichrist for what they are. In the strong name of Jesus we pray. Amen.